This reading is Luke 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out his workers into his field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is here, your your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jen. I want to share something with you this morning that's been a real game changer for me. It's changed the way that I live, it's changed the way that I relate to God, it's changed the way that I relate to other people around me. So if your experience of Christianity has become routine, boring, tired, or dull, I really think that this could be something that could make a difference for you. So my question is, are you interested? Thank you. I hope that you are, because I think that it's not something that comes from me, it's not like an infomercial or something like that, but it comes from God's word. So I want to invite you to look at the text that was just read to us this morning. Turn in your Bibles, there's some blue ones right underneath your seat, to Luke chapter 10, page 868 in those Bibles. If you're new to grace, we're in a series titled Living in God's Kingdom. The kingdom of God is central to understanding the Bible's storyline, and it's, it's central to understanding Jesus. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, and he begins his public ministry, he starts it by announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. So that becomes very important for Jesus as he he launches his public ministry. It is about the kingdom of God. As we've seen previously in this series, the kingdom of God involves heaven and earth coming together once again under the governance of God. When you open up the Bible in Genesis, you see that in Genesis 1 and 2 that that's the way things originally were. Heaven and earth were together under the governance of God and things functioned the way they're supposed to function. When you come to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, heaven and earth are once again reunited and things function, things 
behave the way they're supposed to. There's no more death, no more sickness. There's no more refugees running around the world trying to find asylum. There's no more murder. There's no more headlines like we're reading all the time. There's no more distrust of government. There's no more cheating, no more lying, no more deceiving, no more economic oppression. All the things that wear you down and bring you in on a Sunday morning saying, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from living in this broken world. That's what the kingdom of God anticipates, that that stuff is going to be taken care of one day. And Jesus came inaugurating that saying, it has begun in me, Jesus says. And his death and resurrection have secured that, have guaranteed that that is going to come in all of its fullness one day, even as it begins to happen with Jesus and even in our day still today. So my approach this morning is simply to make some observations from the text to then reveal what this game changer has become for me. So in Luke 10, if you're looking down at the text now that you have it open, Luke 10 verse 1, just a couple comments and just some observations. Jesus is sending out the 72 to represent him and the arrival, his message of the arrival of God's kingdom. He first sends out the, the 12 disciples in Luke 9, 1 to 6. And for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, there's a reason for the 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and those 12 tribes of Israel are significant in terms of Jesus choosing 12 disciples, because basically what Jesus is putting the Jewish nation on alert to understand is that he is reconstituting Israel around himself, which is a radical and bold move, because if you knew your Hebrew scriptures, you knew that God was at the center of Israel. The temple, the tabernacle, God's presence was at the center of Israel. Israel found its reason for being in a God who had called them into being. God was at the center of Israel. And now Jesus comes on this scene. He's saying, I'm reconstituting Israel around myself. Well, to do that is to do what? Is to claim equality with God. To say, this is a Yahweh move on Jesus' part. So Jesus calls the twelve first to himself in Luke 9. And then he sends out here in this text, 72. And the 72 are significant because it's an allusion to the 72 nations that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. In other words, it's setting the stage for the good news of Jesus spreading beyond Jerusalem and out to the whole world. What's interesting in this text as well, at least I found interesting, is while the 12 disciples have their names recorded for us in Luke 9, these 72 are anonymous. And I, I kind of stepped back and found some application here. That I, I found it, to me, it's refreshing to be reminded that, that God doesn't need celebrities to accomplish his purposes in the world. In a culture that is so infatuated with celebrity, and we get so kind of inundated that maybe we're not well known enough, that here God chooses to include 72 anonymous people who are doing his work and so if you're feeling like you're average, if you're feeling like you're nothing spectacular, if you're feeling like maybe you don't have a whole lot to offer, or your background or your storyline is something that just, you think, well, you know, how could God ever use me? That's exactly the person God wants to use. That's exactly the person that God wants to use. So if, you're, if you put yourself on the sidelines because of that, think twice. Because these are the people that God calls and uses. He doesn't need celebrities to accomplish his purposes in the world. 72 anonymous people here. And what is their task? Well, in verse 5, he says, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. 
Now, what is going on there? Well, the peace that is there is, comes from the idea of shalom. Uh, the Hebrew term for peace is shalom. So it's both an absence of conflict, an absence of war, but it also includes something that's very positive. It's, it's well-being, it's harmony, it's security, it's abundance. And so they're bringing this message that this is what the kingdom of God is all about. To, to welcome the kingdom of God is to welcome the possibility of this becoming a reality. Then in verse 6, he says to welcome these messengers is to welcome their message. And as part of his instruction, uh, he says in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, because this text might be familiar to people who are Bible readers about the whole dust issue, uh, shaking the dust off your feet, you may not notice what I just read in verse 8, which was the instruction to eat what is set before you. Why is that significant? Well, because these are Jewish messengers. And so he's in essence saying to them, as you go out and represent me, don't refuse the ham sandwich. If, you, if someone cooks up a really good barbecue, don't refuse it in your kosher mindset. So you see what's going on. As they encounter these people beyond Jerusalem, who are they going to encounter? They're going to encounter non-Jews. They're going to encounter Gentiles. So Jesus is telling them how to encounter the other, and he's telling them, don't try to turn the other into yourself. I think that's still a challenge today for the church today. See, my question is, is our good news good news about Jesus, or is it simply an invitation to join our group and to become like us? That's what I see a lot in the American church. I see largely an American church that is about inviting people into a group and becoming like us. But here it's something very different, and Jesus says, no, don't do that. Another thing that Jesus does is he sends these 72 out with instructions to not offer hospitality. To not offer hospitality, which is surprising to me. Again, what surprises you as you look at the text? I would expect the opposite. I would expect Jesus to say, look, if you really want to represent me well, if you want to show my kind of love, then be hospitable, welcome people like I do. Now, to be fair, if you go to other places in the New Testament, you will see that hospitality is commanded as a practice for Christians, all right? So it is in other places in the Bible. Romans 12, 13, to be very specific, and what it says in Romans 12, 13 is practice hospitality. That's pretty clear. In the Greek, it says practice hospitality. <laughs> and, and then in 1 Timothy 3, 2, when it's giving, when Paul is talking to Timothy as he's starting these fledgling little groups that are called churches, he tells Timothy what to look for in the types of leaders that ought to be leading the church. And he says that one of the marks of, of these early leaders should be people who are hospitable. So you want to know who should be leading you in the church, it's people who are hospitable by nature, by practice. And so hospitality is in other places, is commanded. But here, Jesus is telling the 72 to receive hospitality, not to offer it. 
Because it's in that posture that the Spirit will show them where He is at work. In other words, as you encounter people who desire to welcome and receive and serve you, you can know where the Spirit is at work. That's what Jesus is telling them. And this became the game changer for me. This is what became the game changer for my life. Because there's an important reality behind this this sending that Jesus does here. See, the Spirit is already out in front of these people, preparing their receptivity. Preparing receptivity to them and to their message about Jesus. Jesus tells these 72 anonymous followers that the Spirit will be out in front of them. In other words, he's sending them to join God in the neighborhood. And this became a radical shift. This has become a radical shift for me in terms of my role as a pastor from seeing that my primary role is to fix the church, to improve the church, or to grow the church. My role is to join God in the neighborhood and to invite other people to join God in the neighborhood. Because actually, the church finds its reason for existence within the mission of God. Let me say that again, because if some of you are just, your caffeine hasn't kicked in yet, you just missed something really important. The kingdom of God is about what God wants to do in the world. The church finds its reason for being within the mission of God. If there's no mission, then there's no reason for the church. Does that make sense? No mission, no reason for the church. It's like saying, if you don't play football games, there's no reason to have a football team. Unless you just like dressing up in funny uniforms, big helmets. It's very analogous to that. You see, there's something that God is doing in the world, and he's, put, he's constituted the community of his people together for the purpose of his mission. No mission, no need for the church. You're saying, is that you thinking that up? No, that's my reading of the scripture. And there's a whole bunch of other people that are out there too that I could cite you if you think that I'm just one solo lunatic. There are a lot of other missiologists who have said this for ages. Mission determines ecclesiology. It determines the purpose of the church, what the church is supposed to be. And this is, what, again, what Jesus is preparing us for. This is what Luke is, is, is getting out in front of and saying, this is what it's supposed to be about. And so this has been a radical shift for me. And this is how the kingdom of God becomes a reality. We're talking about the kingdom of God. This is how it becomes a reality. Jesus gives life. He calls people to represent him, to do the things that he does. And the motivation to do this is that he is already at work out in front of us. He's already at work. The Spirit is already in the neighborhood. The Spirit is already out in front of us. And he's inviting us to join him in the neighborhood where he's out there working ahead of us. And this has been a game changer for me personally because it's freed me from thinking that I have to make something happen. 
And some of you have been in a church for a long time. That's one of your greatest, um, what I'll call, hang-ups. Because maybe you've heard some kind of a message that your duty is to go out there and get people saved. And then bring them into the church. And somehow you need to, to strong on them with about 4,000 proofs of the existence of God and out-talk them and out-think them and out-logic them. And you're going, I don't have time to even study that stuff, much less get equipped to go do that. And quite frankly, I don't have any interest in doing that because it seems very off-putting. And I think there's a whole generation of people that are reacting against that. And instead, what this does is it resets the whole paradigm force and says, no, wait a minute. The pressure's off. This is not about you making something happen. Instead, Jesus is inviting me to join in what the Spirit is already at work doing in the world. And that's freeing. Because the Spirit is already out in front of us. He's already active in people's lives. So to do this, I found four key practices to be helpful for joining God in the neighborhood. They're up on the screen behind me. Four key practices to be helpful. So I'm going to give you something really practical here. They're drawn from Luke chapter 10. They are availability, attentiveness, listening, and connecting. I'm going to go through them really quickly. First of all, availability. To join God in the neighborhood, you have to be available to God. It means being available to God and to others. What do I mean by being available to God? I mean going to him in prayer. All right? That's really the foundation. It begins with starting the day saying, Jesus, what's your agenda? I mean, even just stopping to ask that question, Jesus, what's your agenda today? And one of the things that I've been doing, I've got, a, um, I've got an alert on my phone, and it sets off this horrible, annoying alarm that everybody gives me dirty looks when it goes off. And they go, what is that? I go, it's my reminder to pray. And so I've got three reminders throughout the day, and that, when that goes off, I pray just simply that Luke 11, may your kingdom come, may your will, not mine, be done. So it's a way of of praying for the kingdom of God and thinking about how that might come to pass. That's about being available to God by, first of all, alerting myself to pray. But then being available to others, that's a posture of welcoming the other. I'm going to get very pointed here. It means I don't just hang out with my own group of friends, the same group of friends. And that's easy to do as Christians. It means I welcome people who might not think like me, look like me, believe like me, see the world like I do, vote like me, and on and on and on it goes. It's about welcoming the other, whoever that other might be. And that was a real struggle for this early Jewish Christian movement. They really struggled with welcoming the other. Second is that I found to be helpful is attentiveness. Attentiveness. Because God is out in front of me, I can practice the posture of attentiveness. So I'm asking the question, where and how might God already be at work? Where and how might God already be at work? And so as I engage in conversations, I'm asking, I'm silently asking Jesus, Jesus, how might you have already been involved in this person's life to prepare them for this conversation that we're having right now? And that's what I'm asking when I'm standing there listening to someone. Because there's an assumption that there's a high possibility that the Spirit of God might have already been involved in this person's life, preparing them for the conversation that I'm having with this person. And so it activates me to be attentive rather than passive. Or just playing it safe by exchanging what I call nice nothingness. Our culture is fantastic, exchanging nice nothingness. Yeah, don't talk to me for very long. 
all right, because I'll be judging you. Is it nice nothingness, you know? Do we really engage with something with people? It's so easy to just play it safe or to engage in conversation in such a way that, that it's really about us and we're trying to craft the conversation in such a way that we want them to think a certain way about us. But this is very different, being attentive to how Jesus may be already at work in this person's life. Third thing is listening. The third practice I found to be helpful is listening. Listening to the narratives of people. People who are in our neighborhoods, people who are in our networks of relationships. See, everyone has a story, right? Everyone that's come in here today has a story. You all have a story to tell. The question is, has anyone listened to your story recently? Does anyone know your story? I mean, seriously, at a deep level, does anyone know your story? How many people do you trust your story to? It's always interesting to ask these kind of questions and watch heads go down. It's like you can't even hide your visible reaction, your, your bodily reaction to the fact that so many of us are carrying around our stories, feeling so isolated and so alone, even though we're around people all the time. I think that's where our culture is. The articles that I've been reading recently say the number one ailment of our culture right now is loneliness. It's isolation and loneliness. And so to step into this practice of joining God in the neighborhood involves listening. And it means I I need to step into their story, to be interested in it, to welcome it, to listen to the parts where the storyteller becomes animated, where they become alive, where they're most fully human. And the good news is you can get better at this. You can practice it. And here's one way that I've found, and that is to ask open-ended instead of closed-end questions. Don't ask questions that end with yes or no, that can be answered with yes or no. Take whatever they give you right there and be interested in it and ask the next obvious question. It's a practice that you can get really, really good at. One of the things that I've, one of the ways that I've practiced is whenever I go into some kind of a public setting where I know that the conversation will be shut down and I'll be isolated if they find out I'm a pastor, just pick a setting, any setting, and they'll run from you if you're a pastor. (laughs) Seriously. It's horrible. So I've had to work hard at seeing how long I can sustain a conversation with a person and then not find out that I'm a pastor. My record has been up to two hours on an airplane. Two hours with some dude from some old washed-out rock band from years ago. And I sat next to him, and finally, after two hours of hearing about his life and story, he turned around and he goes like, so, man, what do you do? And so I decided just to go for it. I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He goes like, dropped some language. He goes, no way. And I go like, why? He goes like, because you don't look like one. I said, well, what does that mean? So evidently, not only do we have all the other stereotypes, we have a look too that just basically isolates us and keeps us from being relevant to the rest of the world. I love this occupation. But you can get really good at drawing people out to the fact that they want to talk and they want to tell their story and they're so intrigued and they become alive as you pull them out. I'm telling you, it is fun to do, to watch people 
tell their story and to become animated. It's a beautiful thing to do. And the other thing I say to you all, I think that it's rare to find someone who's deeply interested in your story beyond what's your name and what do you do. And it's unfortunate that in our culture, the thing that really matters is what do you do. And depending upon how you answer that, then that determines whether or not someone remembers your name. Oh, yeah, I've got to remember them because they are, they do this. That's where we are. So to listen is to really practice something that's very countercultural. You will stand out with that practice. Fourth and final is connecting. Connecting people's stories to the story of Jesus. This is a practice that I've found to be very helpful in joining God in the neighborhood. This is about joining the Spirit to help people see that our longings for love and beauty and relational connection and a sense of meaning and purpose are all part of what it means to be truly human. In other words, we were made for this. So when I talk to someone, I know that those things that are coming out in their storytelling are all part of what it means to be human, and they were made for this. And the reason why I know this is because it's part of being made in the image of God. We were meant for relationship with God. And all those things that we sense are right about the world, the way the world is supposed to function, the way families and marriages and relationships are supposed to function, all come from the fact that we were designed for this. This is what it means to be in relationship to God. And to be fully alive, to be fully human, is to find our way back to God through Jesus. And that's why Jesus has to come up in the the conversation. I found that to be freeing. I'm not out to try to evangelize someone. I'm not doing this because I'm a pastor. I'm doing this because I know that the way to be fully human is to be in relationship to God. And the only way to find that way back to God, that we originally in relationship to God, but it was been broken because of rebellion, the only way back is through Jesus. Jesus becomes the greatest assistant to getting us back to God and getting us back to being fully human and fully alive. That's why I don't apologize for talking about Jesus. It's beautiful. And people need that. It's wonderful. So I'm invited to partner with God in connecting people's stories to the story of Jesus. Now, here's my final question. Can you, after I've I've spent some time in this, and I want to ask you this question. Can you feel the difference? Feel is the word I just used. Can you feel the difference that this might make in the way that you are present to people? Because I'm hoping that in what I've tried to convey this morning, that you get a a feel, not just some kind of a head knowledge, but a, a feel for how this can be so freeing. Because there's no pressure to try to make something happen. And yet at the same time, anticipation is raised. In fact, it's heightened. Because in any given conversation, in any given encounter with anyone, the Spirit of God has already been out in front of me and out in front of you to prepare that conversation or that person. You don't know until you get involved. So there's a possibility that Jesus has been at work in someone's life ahead of you, ahead of me. And so I look forward to seeing I look forward to discovering how Jesus might be at work because the Spirit has already been out ahead of me. 
So here's the bottom line. God is simply inviting me to join him in the neighborhood. And you're welcome to, invo- to join him too. Thanks be to God.